You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back, my Freedom Pact family. I am your host, Joseph Newton, and this is the show that challenges conventional thinking and will lead you to freedom, whatever that may be defined by yourself. And the route we will take you on will go via self-optimization. What an incredible episode we have for you today on the show. We are joined by one of the leading pioneers in the field of healthcare, Dr. William Lee. Will is a renowned physician, scientist, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Eat to Beat Disease, The New Science of How Your Body Can Heal Itself. Will is best known for leading the Angiogenesis Foundation. His groundbreaking work has impacted more than 70 diseases in areas that include cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity this guy is the real deal he is pretty much at the forefront of the field will's ted talk can we to starve cancer has been viewed more than 11 million times will's appeared on major shows like good morning america cnn npr the voice of america and his work has been in features like the Atlantic Time, the New York Times, as well as publishing over a hundred scientific publications that have been featured in journals like Science, which is pretty much as good as a guess. He's been in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet. Dr. Lee has served on the faculties of the Harvard Medical School, Tufts University and Dartmouth Medical School. The beginning of this conversation is all about Will's background and then we really delve deep into eating to beat disease. There's so much gold in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Will, it is a real treat for me to get to sit down and speak with you today. Welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure, uh, Joseph, to be on the show and uh, look forward to uh, having a great conversation together. I read Eat to Beat Disease a few months back, and ever since I read that, I have wanted to get you on the show. You are finally here on the other end of this Skype call. So let's start with your background, Will. What I found particularly interesting is that you trained as an internal medicine doctor, which, looking in from the outside, that would give you a holistic overview of health in terms of age, levels of health. When you combine this with the fact that you're also a vascular biologist, to me, seems like a real key advantage that you would have because this would give you a unique insight into health from two different ways. The vascular biologist would give you the advantage of looking into things like angiogenesis, which we're going to go into today. So let's start here, Will. What advantages have you gained from working these two fields simultaneously? Yes, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, we call that, we call the combination of uh, being a a trained uh, practicing physician and also a, uh, a researcher that works in a laboratory at a very deep level, we, call, we, we, we are known as physician scientists. 
And what that means and the advantages it gives um, uh, an individual who pursues such a career is that as a doctor uh, uh, trained in um, medicine, uh, which allows us to approach, uh, for me, internal medicine, anyone in the community, young and old, men and women, uh, men and women, sick uh, or healthy, um, uh, the ability to um, uh, have a conversation, uh, um, uh, do a physical exam, uh, order some blood tests, and, and come up with an idea of someone's um, uh, status of health or sickness, as the case may be. And that's a wonderful and I think a very powerful uh, and a, a privilege to really be able to have uh, from a healing perspective. Um, most doctors do actually uh, uh, have a, quite a lot of scientific exposure during their educational period. But once you get out into the field, so to speak, and you have your open up a clinic or you're in a hospital, you really have relatively little exposure to science and the practice of medicine really has um, very strong elements of a trade, which is how do we practice our craft over and over and get better and better at what we do? Now, that is sort of one side of my background. The other side of my background um, as a vascular biologist is really as a scientist. And what's uh, different about being a scientist is that we are asking new questions and we're challenging old assumptions. And so in my field of vascular biologist, uh, biology, um, we're asking, how do blood vessels grow? Um, what keeps them healthy? Why do they get sick? Um, what can we do um, naturally or pharmacologically um, using medicines to actually get them back into better shape or ideally back to back to health itself? And in some cases, um, you can actually use tissue engineering and actually grow um, artificial blood vessels um, if the body can't grow them fast enough. And so as, as a scientist, um, my job is to ask questions, challenge past assumptions, make progress forward in terms of new knowledge. And, you know, while a doctor in practice can um, really accomplish quite a lot to help a patient feel better and get better in a short period of time, science is actually a much steeper hill to climb, <clears throat> um, uh, uh, much more disciplined and uh, rigorous uh, because we are building our knowledge brick by brick. But the advantage of actually, for myself, being a physician scientist is combining both of these um, uh, identities together allows me to see a patient and do what I do as a scientist, which is ask the question, um, uh, what might be um, going on? Uh, what do we yet not know about why this person is healthy or sick? Um, and Although doctors have a, you know, the, the proverbial black bag of treatments that we've developed over the decades and even centuries, the reality is, is that we uh, unfortunately still are not able to, to cure many of the diseases that we would like to. And so part of my job as a physician scientist is to see a patient and ask the question, um, ask questions that, that will challenge the assumptions. Is the treatment that we are, uh, we've been taught to give a patient really the best treatment? Is there something better we should be doing? Or perhaps a more, um, a more, uh, uh, a, a more uh, loaded way of ask, of, of sort of stating what I just said is, <clears throat> you know, challenging the standards of care. Is what we're doing as standard in medicine good enough? Or could we actually be doing better? And that's really the advantage, I think, the, the advantages, I think, for my background of both a practicing doctor as well as a scientist. I'd really love to drill in on this standard of medicine. For everybody that's listening now, we had a great conversation about this with a great friend of the show and for us personally, Dr. Will Bolshevitz, Dr. B as we like to call him. Are you aware of Dr. B, Will? Yeah, uh, you know, I've met him before, but, uh, you know, just I think mostly in passing and we, we, uh, we, we've had some similar uh, paths where, where we've uh, met each other. Yeah, Dr. B, he is a great guy. And 
I remember the episode that we did with him, which for anybody listening now, they can go and check out. I believe off the top of my head that it's number 33 in our library. The episode that we did with Dr. B, it just completely blew up. It was a top 50 podcast in the UK. It reached number one in places like Iceland, Norway, Sweden. It was top 10 in Jordan. It was in Israel. It was everywhere, this episode. And we think that it was largely due to the fact that in the episode, Will highlighted that there was systemic issues of the education that a medical student will receive. Now, I can't remember the exact figure that Will said, but I remember he told me that all of the education that he received into nutrition came down to a single module, which only lasted for a few weeks. I remember Lewis and myself, who was my co-host, we were just absolutely shocked by this. And the feedback that we had after this from emails, from Instagram messages, it was that, you know, people actually thought that he was joking. Like, people legit thought that that Dr. B was joking about this. They thought that it just couldn't be possible. So, to me, if that is in fact the case, then that seems like an enormous systematic issue. So, I wonder, Will... The other will, you of course. <laughs> Did you have a similar experience to this? And do you think that in fact that there could be a potential systematic problem? Yes, my experience is very similar. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you my my own sort of how I, how I encountered this myself. <clears throat> you know, um, uh, as some of your listeners may know, uh, uh, Getting into medical school is is quite a is, uh, is is quite a feat involving a lot of studying and and test taking and qualifications and uh, this is true anywhere in the world uh, and once you get into medical school we are literally um, given let's say four thousand years of Western medical knowledge um, with the most intensive components being what we've learned in the last fifty. Um, uh, squeezed into four years of training, and of which two about fifty percent of that is really mostly coursework, and the other half of it is uh, hands-on um, learning the actual um, uh, sort of trade craft of seeing patients and caring for them. So, in two years, let's say we're taking um, uh, the last fifty years of medical science and compressing it uh, into a series of lectures and tests. And uh, the argument uh, that most of the medical educators, the deans, so to speak, of medical education have always argued is that what we, what, what we are taught, what they teach, is based on the latest cutting-edge science. And because nutrition, until recently, hasn't really been as sophisticated as pharmacology or genetics or biotech, uh, you know, biochemistry, um, it's long been uh, regarded by the medical establishment as sort of a, a secondary um, uh, field of, of, of science, of health, um, less worthy of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the short time um, uh, that uh, is only available for medical students to learn what they need to learn. And as you might imagine, uh, year after year of this kind of thinking with more and more detailed science and pharmacology coming out really pushes out. Um, and, and I would say uh, it, it, there's been a prejudice developed against nutrition research where it's not even taken seriously uh, in most medical school curriculum. So for myself, I had, I think over the course of my career, my formal career um, through education, you know, less than four weeks of, uh, of training in nutrition at all, right? And yet every single one of my patients I've seen always asks me some question about health. Now, you know, many of them will not never ask me about questions about HIV drugs or, or, um, uh, or fancy, you know, conditions related to, you know, glands or hormones. 
but everyone asks me about nutrition, and yet that's something that that doctors are um, medical doctors are so poorly informed on. Um, uh, here's some United States uh, statistics. Um, uh, uh, only one in five medical schools in the United States require uh, medical students to take any nutrition course. Only one in five. That means twenty percent. Eighty percent of schools do not rec- have any requirement. And in terms of the um, postgraduate uh, uh, program training, so that means after you graduate and you're in practice, there are so few courses available to continue the education on nutrition that it is deeply embarrassing, I think, for most practicing doctors out there to be asked, confronted with a, with a valid um, uh, question from a patient about nutrition and then the, and to feel uh, so ignorant uh, about the subject matter when pretty much consumers at large, you know, um, and elder, other healthcare professionals, definitely nutritionists, but also um, uh, even a fitness trainer is going out there spending time. And I think this is part of it, having the priority to spend the energy and the time to learn and keep up with the science of nutrition. But all this is changing now. And so I think that, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping to be one of the people to really make a big dent um, uh, in, in changing the past. I, I think now people going into, uh, students going to medical school, and indeed, I think some of the more progressive medical educators are realizing that uh, we need to broaden our scope, both in terms of learning as well as in uh, teaching, and that ultimately uh, having a good, solid uh, grounding in the science of nutrition is going to make our society healthier as well as more satisfied at the medical level and how we practice medicine. So we have a more complete view of what we can do for our patients. Uh, a, a, let's say another to, another important set of tools in our toolbox. It's interesting, Will. When we interview people like Dr. B, Professor David Sinclair, who was very recently on the show, the impression that I get speaking to these great minds a lot like yourself is that the people in the field are extremely optimistic and one of the reasons is is that it seems like the science of nutrition is just moving at a hundred miles per hour i'd love to know how fast is the science of nutrition moving in your eyes will yeah, well, I think there's two fields that are moving really quickly that um, lace interlace with one another. One is the science of nutrition, which is based on you know centuries old knowledge um, of thinking about vitamins and mi- minerals as sort of core elements, and then bu- builds on thousands of years of sort of tribal uh, knowledge that you know uh, humankind has always known about the importance of food. Um, so uh, you know, rather than thinking about you know nutrition as sort of something that has uh, been in the dark ages all this time, what I would say is that uh, collectively in humankind we've always recognized how important nutrition is. What's happened, I think, is that um, you know probably starting in the mid 20th century, so the 1960s and onwards let's call it up until the the new millennium, 40, 50 years, uh, there's been so much a shift in emphasis towards biotechnology and biopharmaceuticals and medical devices, cool things that science can create, that we lost focus, lost prioritization on nutrition, but it's always been there. What's happening now that's driving the speed of, of, of nutrition um, I think as my colleagues, Dr. Sinclair and, and, uh, and Bolshevitz actually talk about, is really the fact that we're now beginning to re-acknowledge the fact that nutrition is important and we're pulling out of the closet um, uh, what's long been uh, understood implicitly to be important for our health. Now, the thing that's really driving uh, the science itself, which is data, which is research studies involving genetics, cells, animals, uh, humans, uh, populations, driving that uh, uh, forward is because, in fact, coming from, ironically, the research that's been done for biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, because what you, what's happened in the last 
20, 30 years, there's been this um, uh, astounding explosion of knowledge. Uh, in the last 25 years, there have been more than 800 new drugs approved by the US FDA, 800. And each of these um, uh, drugs that have been produced and approved and are used in the practice of medicine have left in their wake, you know, during the development stage, all this research to help us understand what happens when the body falls apart, which then gives us the insight, what can we do to actually put it back together again, and also gives us the insight, if a drug can work this way, how might foods be able to activate a similar effect um, and not just drug? And so what's happening now is that the science of health and disease, driven by the last two decades of biotechnology, has served up. Um, to us in you know present day, this enormous uh, set of powerful tools to be able to look at um, uh, not just what's in you know how does what kind of foods are good for us, but how does the body respond to the foods that we put inside it, and then to also be able to look at and reignite our attention and nutrition. So you know one of the things that you know we've already been talking about, um, uh, Joseph, is the fact that you know in the world of health and you know medicine. Nothing is black and white. Nothing is simple. It's usually a combination of things that are actually leading to the present day and to the future indeed. And in terms of you know the, the, the speed of development of the science of nutrition, it is moving incredibly fast, driven by our knowledge of how the body works when you put something inside it. And the same knowledge is the, is the kind of knowledge that uh, has already been proven to be useful in the enterprise of drug development. And now what's happening is that there's an entire cadre of, of doctors and scientists and indeed policymakers um, uh, and educators that are now starting to uh, realize, hey, you know what, we can put our knowledge of health together with our knowledge of food. And when you combine those two together, you can weave this new tapestry to understand food as medicine. And that's really, I think, the exciting, uh, undiscovered country ahead of us. Oh, you couldn't be any more right, Will. It is such an exciting time. I'm excited. We're learning so, so much. And I, you know, I, I can't help but share your optimism. And, and I recommend you for being a a real leading figure in this field. It It is, you know, really admirable what's happening at the moment. Just linking ideas together. I know that you say that the science of health is really the future of medicine. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, <clears throat> so think about um, uh, yourself as and myself as the average person. You um, sit down uh, with a friend over a meal or over a beer in a pub, and basically um, you ask each other the question, um, what is health? Okay. And I can tell you until a few years ago, I, you, I would probably give the same answer as, you know, as anyone else, uh, who lives in my, my town. And I would say, well, if that's an easy answer, um, health is the absence of disease, right? So if you're not sick, then you're healthy. Well, that's actually an incredibly, um, uh, uh vacuous, uh, and oversimplified, and I think a dangerous way of thinking, which is that our health is um, uh, just intrinsic to our existence until we are sick. Quite the opposite. The new research is showing that I'm working on is showing is that, which is the science of health, is showing is that health is absolutely not just the absence of disease, but rather it is the result of our body's hardwired defense, health defense systems we've been that are firing on all cylinders from the time we're born to our very last breath these health defense systems um, were developed when we were in our mom's wombs and in fact they are primed to help us resist disease but we have to work for it our body our health systems our body works for our health every single day and what's interesting is that when you think about your body as a, um, a series of health defenses that are working um, uh, to maintain health, it gives us the power to begin understanding what our day-to-day -day actions are, the choices we make, um, how that can influence uh, our, our fates and our outcomes, and not just leaving 
our health in the hands of, of the medical doctors that we would go to when we have a sniffle or a cold or a tummy ache or, or worse. And so the science of health, I think, is going to completely shape the future of medicine where um, in the future, medical doctors are going to first think about health and first understand how to protect it and do everything possible to help um, a patient, an individual, their family, the community remain as healthy as possible. And for those who are unable to um, avoid disease, of which there will be some people that cannot avoid disease, it will then leave us um, uh, with sufficient resources because of the overall health of our population with more resources to dedicate those resources to those who are unable to avoid disease. That is the only way to, to really be able to reconcile our growing knowledge of disease, the better tools that we're having to treat the diseases, which are very expensive, and yet this overwhelming crushing burden of disease in which there are people that could have avoided diseases by you know, having a better diet or lifestyle and taking care of themselves that are unnecessarily um, forcing our society, our governments, um, our, our health systems to be able to um, uh, invest scarce dollars to try to help everyone. So I think when I talk about the future of medicine, it's a technology future, it's a practice future, it's the policy, national policy, health policy future. It's not, it's not simply, um, you know, having some interesting, you know, research papers out there. This is going to be transformative. The more we understand health, the more we're going to actually be able to succeed in the quest to use medicine to, um, uh, to help our fellow man. You give this tremendous analogy of the body being like a medieval castle. I always find the most brilliant people which we speak to, they have the ability to take a hugely complex topic and be able to really bring it back down to something the lay person would understand. And I thought, thought this was a brilliant analogy. I'm just wondering, could you go take us through that analogy which you give? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I mean, most of us uh, have had the opportunity to uh, see a castle uh, or a medieval fortress before, whether it's in a picture book uh, or whether it's in a school class. Uh, in the United States, you know, what do we do? We go to Disney, <laughs> where, they, <laughs> where they have recapitulated um, uh, the European uh, castles. And of course, uh, I, I've had the privilege of, of seeing some really spectacular fortresses uh, castle fortresses um, in my travels, including in Europe. And the thing is that, you know, I think all of us marvel when we look at it, when we go to a castle or a fortress, is uh, it's it's um, uh, just how powerful the structure is. I mean, it is clearly built to defend the people that live inside it. And um, some of the details that fortresses um, have been created with are very similar to how the body's been created. And so that's the analogy that I wrote about in my book, Eat to Beat Disease. Um, you know, by the way, the subtitle of that book is really the beating heart, um, the first third of the book, which is the new science of how your body can heal itself. And that's where the medieval castle comes in. The medieval fortress idea comes in is how does our body defend itself? Why don't we get sick more often? And so let's jump back to the medieval fortress. You go to a castle, and of course today they're you know tourist attractions, and you just get to marvel at the architecture. But I, you know, um, I, I, uh, people who really know uh, fortresses look more closely at how they are designed. These fortresses are amazingly designed, just like the body. For example, um, one of the obvious uh, defenses that are all there's defenses all over a castle. You get the moat. And so it's filled with um, – it's either a deep pit or it's filled with um, water, and it makes it difficult for people that, uh, to, to, to go over the moat. You've got a um, – uh, you know, you've got the, the, uh, the, the gate that actually um, you know, can, be, can be lowered over the moat so people can come in. Um, you've got the sloping wall, right? Very difficult to climb up a sloping wall. But also it was designed so that if you were defending the castle, you could drop a rock from the top, and the rock would – shatter against the slope and send shrapnel to your enemy got the little arrow slits you can actually fire um uh, uh arrows um at your invaders and then some of the less uh, uh obvious <clears throat> things that i i find to be like totally brilliant uh, uh, uh most people don't know when you walk into the main entryway of a castle 
into the foyer, so to speak. You know, uh, what are we doing? We're, we're looking ahead uh, to, to explore the rest of the castle. But if you look up in the, in the entranceway, um, you'll see there's a hole above the ceiling. And that hole was called a murder hole, literally. And this was a hole in the ceiling for defenders, for if, if there was an invaders, for defenders to be able to drop rocks or scalding water or hot oil on the on top of an invader. What an amazing defense uh, defense that was built. Um, uh, also, the the stair staircase in a in a castle. Um, you know, the the staircase uh, staircase of a spiral staircase of a castle is usually um, going up clockwise. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, and why does it? Why was it designed to be clockwise as a defense of the castle? <clears throat> because if it's if it's winding up clockwise, the defenders who are on top of the stairs, who usually were right-handed, could swing their swords downwards. Whereas if you were an invader and right-handed, and you were going up a staircase, if you think about it, and you are right-handed, you would be disadvantaged at swinging upwards, and so the defenders would have the advantage. So all these kind of uh, hidden traps and defense mechanisms in the castle um, uh, are just part of the this ingenious structure itself. And uh, in the human body, um, we also uh, are designed to defend ourselves against invaders of the body in the same way. And so uh, what my work has revealed is that our health being not just simply the absence of disease is the result of at least five health defense systems, which I write about in my book, Eat to Be Disease, um, that are hardwired inside our bodies, just like the defense systems inside a fortress. So if you think about our body as a fortress, these defense systems um, allow us to repel invaders, to be able to fight off um, uh, uh, problems that occur and clean up problems that occur, and to allow you know our cells, our organs, our brain, um, uh, you know, to be able to rest more comfortably and securely within uh, our body itself. And so that's really the analogy. In, in the same way that medieval fortresses are designed, brilliantly designed, to repel enemies and, and for its own defense, so too is our body um, uh, designed and hardwired to be able to defend, to protect us against disease. You talk about these at least five major health systems which we have. You know, you talk about you give that amazing medieval castle analogy, and and just looking at them, we've got angiogenesis, regeneration, the microbiome, DNA protection, immunity. So I suppose the question for me would be in terms of these natural defense systems. What are we doing or what could we potentially be doing day to day to damage or weaken those defense systems? Right. Well, um, the first thing to understand is that each of these defense systems, the five that you just alluded to, angiogenesis, our circulation, uh, regeneration, our stem cells, uh, our microbiome, our healthy gut bacteria, our DNA, which is far more than a genetic code. It actually is not just a blueprint, it's actually a defensive system against the environment. And our immune system, which you know our, our grandmothers all told us how important our good immunity is, but now we know that the immune system is so powerful, it could fight, help us fight off cancer even when it actually has spread, even when we're in our 80s and 90s. And so we are, I mean, these defense systems are, incredibly powerful. Before we get into them uh, and talk about how food could actually impact on them, um, l l let's talk about some of the damages, right? So uh, uh, most of us who care about health, you know, try to exercise, get sleep and, you know, eat our veggies, you know, plant-based diet and, and so on and so forth. Um, but what uh, what is the reality is that uh, being a human being on living on planet Earth, we are exposed from the moment we're born to environmental insults everywhere. Uh, the simplest one being sunshine, which is a, a little bit of sunshine is good for us. It actually helps our body produce you know, and activate vitamin D, um, which helps build strong bones. But think about the people who are um, uh, out at the beach tanning or in a tanning salon or even stuck in traffic um, on a sunny day with the sun pouring through the windshield, right? Uh, or at a picnic or at a sporting event. And so in each of these cases, our body is being assaulted by powerful ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun. 
So why is it? And we know that you know ultraviolet light um, can actually damage our cells, and in fact, on our skin, and can actually cause skin cancer. Right? That's called melanoma, wear sunblock. But but given how much sun exposure we have, um, how come we don't actually develop skin cancer more often than we do? Right? So. Um, so the sun is one of these um, things that does damage to our bodies all the time. <clears throat> our uh, local environments, uh, so you don't have to be a smoker yourself to be damaged by smoke. If you smell secondary smoke, um, which is you know um, somebody smoking nearby uh, in a park or in a street corner, you're damaging your lungs by inhaling that smoke. Uh, tertiary smoke is not even a person there, but even smoke that the residue left on a carpet or anybody who's been in a hotel where you know somebody else has smoked in a room, that's tertiary smoke also damaging to your body, what you're breathing in. Let me take it one step further in terms of damaging things we do for ourselves. For those um, of us who have not yet um, uh, uh, gotten onto the electric vehicle um, uh, trend, for the environment. Um, most of us still drive cars that use petrol. Go to the petrol station and you pump gas. And I'll ask you, Joseph, do you stand, when you're filling your car with gas, do you stand upwind or downwind? I'd be upwind, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Well, so look, the, 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 the thing is that if you smell the gas at all hmm. uh, during the fueling, then you're standing downwind. So you're, you're, you're mindfully choosing to stand so where the fumes are not blowing into your face but many people don't think about that so you're just mind this you know you're just doing your thing by put, filling your car with petrol and your lungs are being in you're inhaling uh these noxious fumes that actually damage your dna how come we don't get lung cancer you know shortly after filling up our t tank with gas it's our body's defense systems mm -hmm. that are working hard right now let's let's move it um to other things like the um, uh the uh, things that we do to our body, um, I'm going to get to the food in a second, but you don't get enough sleep. Your immune system goes down. It damages your stem cells. Um, uh, it it uh, wrecks your metabolism. Uh, you don't get enough exercise. Um, our healthy gut bacteria, our microbiome, 39,000 bacteria that live inside our live inside and on our body, mostly in our gut, that help to defend ourselves. When you are um, uh, not exercising, when you're sedentary, couch potato, as we sometimes call it, um, it changes the makeup of the ecosystem. You get more, quote, lazy people's bacteria, which are harmful, harmful and cause inflammation. So just sitting around is, can be damaging. And now let's talk about the foods we eat. Um, fatty foods, um, uh, uh, processed meats, ultra-processed foods, you know, things that come in a box that if you look on the side are filled with ingredients that you can barely pronounce because they have so many letters um, in them. Uh, uh, you know, the factory, the huge factory produced chemically laden foods. Um, those kinds of foods um, uh, actually damage our body from the inside out. So once we put them into our body, they start to dismantle our health defenses. They put a stress against our health defenses. So think about it like going into the medieval castle and starting to you know, chip away at the stairwell of the spiral sta staircase, um, or or you know, or, or doing something else that can really damage um, the inside structure. And so, um, uh, alcohol, uh, drinking excessive alcohol can also be uh, highly damaging. Uh, and and not having enough of of, of uh, plants, the fiber from plants, actually uh, can also alter uh, the makeup of our body uh, in terms of our health defenses as well. So. I guess what I'm trying to say is that what we now realize is that health is not the absence of disease, it's the presence of our health defenses. And from the time that we are born on this planet, um, our body is exposed to all these assaults that occur just as a matter of living on planet Earth. Sometimes they're worse. Now you go to, you know, uh, beyond sunshine and, and, and petrol. You go to work in a factory where you're working with all kinds of chemicals. That's even worse. You're amplifying the risks to yourself, but the assaults, um, you choose bad diets. You don't get enough sleep. You don't exercise. All the things that we actually know intrinsically aren't good for us. We're now beginning to have a scientific understanding of what they do. They dismantle and take down our body's health defenses. So the question is, how do we avoid those harmful things and more importantly, how do we build up our defenses? Because we can't avoid those assaults completely. So how do we just get stronger and better and more and have more fortitude? I would love to know 
In what way are you talking about using food as an investment for health? Linking it back to those five defense systems. And then I suppose if you could just touch on how does that approach differ from the current, say, American food system, which which I recently heard uh, Dr. Daniel Eamon say was uh, worse than any damage ISIS could do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, um, uh, food as medicine is um, a contemporary future forward topic because we can now apply science to it. And again, this is where I'm coming from. My dual backgrounds as a doctor taking care of both well and sick people who are looking at food as the missing tool in the toolbox, um, and also my role as a scientist where I'm actually able to really think about, you know, um, what we need to still know, what what has yet to be worked out, and also the challenging assumptions of the past. So um, so, so that's the future forward part of it. Um, but in fact, food is viewed as something important for health in the spirit of medicine by ancient cultures. Hippocrates was, you know, in, in the West, uh, first to actually talk about, you know, let medicine be thy, let food be thy medicine and the medicine be thy food. Um, in Asia, in China, Japan, India, <clears throat> you know, the traditional healing uh, uh, practices are all involved something um, that, that uh, they, they all involve food and, and food substances and herbs as part of their makeup. <clears throat> um, and I think that uh, in the West, as I mentioned earlier, the emphasis that occurred, you know, mid 20th century towards technology and pharmaceuticals and medical devices, amazing progresses, you know, really kind of uh, uh, stole the emphasis away from um, let's call it shifted the tide away from using food for health uh, or for helping to manage disease um, and, and left it kind of um, uh, aground uh, on the beach. And, and then that's exactly the moment when um, uh, sort of post uh, the sort of mid-century, um, the second half of the 20th century, that's where uh, the post-World War II, the industrialization of commercial food <clears throat> began began its own golden age so in the west in america um you know we went from a uh, situation during wartime let's say world war ii where uh, food was scarce uh you know um uh, uh, women and children were uh were recruited to really try to um, uh, create uh, food stores for soldiers to suddenly the war being over and sort of this remaking you know as sort of europe was being remade America rebuilt itself uh, and and demonstrated its prosperity by having uh, a richness, a diversity of foods that were cheap and convenient. And so the current approach that, you know, we're all struggling with in in the West of American food is is basically founded on this idea that it's possible to eat almost anything at any time um, uh, in a very convenient way that is inexpensive. And 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 what what evolved from the commercialization of big food, mass food, commercial food, <clears throat> is a trade-off of lower quality for lower cost, and and that I, and then and then you put marketing on top of it, and you let the media, television, now the internet, you know, sweep everywhere, and essentially we have been inundated with marketing messages that um, tasty foods that have been literally designed to hijack our brain's addiction centers with salt, with fat, with sugar, um, and that are cheap and convenient. You can get anywhere. Like we, we've kind of become zombies of that entire enterprise. And in so doing, we have actually allowed ourselves to in, embark on everyday practice whether it's at the workplace, whether it's at the vending machine, whether it's the train station, whether it's on an airplane, you know, almost anywhere you go at a grocery store, even you wind up actually seeing something cheap, inexpensive and mass processed filled with chemicals that you can quickly get and pop into your mouth. And what that what does that do? It damages our health defense systems. Right. So <clears throat> um, so the whole idea of food as medicine is really kind of a return to the past but not using medieval thinking, quite the opposite, really using future, using the, the, the momentum of science, really, um, to be able to slice through um, our preconceived notions to really discover new ways of actually using foods that can be really helpful. So how, how does that investment in health actually play out? 
Well, it plays out in a couple of different ways. Number one, if we know our health defense systems, um, which I'll go through in a second, and we know that foods can actually boost, support, amplify, activate, engage our health defenses, make us better than we than than we want to be, ampl- be help us be all we can be when it comes to the health defense, then we have a completely new uh, mindset in how we make a decision of what we put into our body. And that mindset is not simply, you know, the, 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 the mantra that's now being spoken. You should eat more plant-based foods. You should become a vegan. You should avoid gluten. You should go keto, right? So those are equally populist ways of actually thinking about things, oversimplification. What I would say is that we're now realizing, the science is teaching us, that we can go to a farmer's market a farm stand, we could go to a grocery store, we can go to a village open air market, <clears throat> uh, we could even go to a supermarket, and with the, with knowledge uh, that, that science has delivered, we can pick and choose from fruits and vegetables, nuts and legumes. We can even choose from certain kinds of meats, although not really red meat. Um, uh, we can choose even from the dairy section, um, uh, certain foods. Uh, and certain, and even in the middle aisles of the supermarket, which you know we've been taught to, you know, don't go into the middle aisle. It's all processed foods. There are some things in that middle aisle that can be actually really, really um, health defense activating. And so, what in my what I wrote about in my in my book, E D B Defeat Disease, is let's remove all the religion, uh, religion like fervor that is uh, you know characterizes the the people who are thinking about health and food. And let's just look at the facts, Jack. What foods, as we wind our, as we navigate through the supermarket, actually activate our health defense systems? <clears throat> what are those health defense systems? And then how do we how do we integrate this into our everyday lives in a way that makes us enjoy our life rather than uh, fear what we eat? <laughs> oh wow! I seriously hope that people study this episode and take notes i know i certainly am there's just so much gold in this one thing that i cannot let you go without first talking about is immunotherapy your ted talk by this point i think it must have like 11 million plus views on youtube when i think about immunotherapy this is a very contemporary, like what you just discussed, but there with the food as medicine being a contemporary approach. Immunotherapy it now offers an entirely new approach to chemotherapy, for example. And immunotherapy, that works in the sense of it just completely enhancing your body's natural defenses, right? You offer the example of immunotherapy reversing cancer without the side effects and toxins that chemotherapy brings chemotherapy it works by blasting out the bad cells in your body but simultaneously it also just blitzes through the good ones in your body as well which obviously we don't want and you give the example that the immunotherapy approach, this worked for your mother, right? Who wiped out cancer within 30 days. But when I read into the work for this, you highlight that immunotherapy is only effective for roughly 20% of people. So why does immunotherapy works so well for someone like your mother but yet it doesn't work for everyone like i said it'll only statistically work for one in five people yeah well so the first thing that your listeners need to know is that immunotherapy is a gigantic breakthrough in the fight against cancer and in fact last year uh was uh, recognized uh with the nobel prize of medicine and physiology so this is a big deal and the big deal is that we can now do something different than treat cancer patients with drugs like chemotherapy that are designed to kill everything in its path, including cancer. <clears throat> you know, when you're killing a cancer, you also destroy your immune system. You also destroy your healthy organs, which is why the side effects are so bad. 
Um, immunotherapy is a completely different way of thinking, which is, you know what? The body has its own defenses called the immune system. Let's stoke up those defenses. Let's fire those defenses up and let's use our own defenses to actually kill cancer. <clears throat> so a number of different approaches have been developed to actually um, tackle cancer. You can cut off the blood supply. You can amp up the immune system. And immunotherapy um, actually uh, is the latter. You sometimes combine it with chemotherapy, but sometimes you don't need to. You can go it alone. And uh, in my mother's case, who had metastatic endometrial cancer, um, you know, who in her 80s, uh, you know, the, the question is, you know, how would a, an elderly person uh, tolerate chemotherapy? The answer is not very well. So we gave her immunotherapy because it was a state of the art, never had to do chemotherapy. And we allowed, we stripped off the cloak that cancers use to hide from the immune system. And in so doing, revealed to an 80-year-old person's immune system uh, that, that was powerful enough to wipe out the cancer, you know, just with literally three, um, uh, three infusions, three treatments that had very little side effects in her case. Now, that's called a complete response, and she's doing very well to this day without cancer, never having received chemotherapy, and only using her immune system really as the, as the primary weapon of choice. It's quite amazing. I never thought I would see this in my own career, and fortunately, my own mother was able to benefit from it, but, but not everybody benefits, and what we're beginning to realize is that um, different, there's different ways to um, help activate the immune system. The one my mother benefited from requires a particular that cloak that cancers use um, which is called pdl1 and you can actually measure whether or not a cancer um, uh, is is uh, using that kind of a cloak if they're not you might actually use a different type of immune therapy or one that's yet to be developed the other thing we're beginning to realize it's even more stunning speaking to the health defenses of your microbiome your gut bacteria um, being one of our defenders um, is that uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Laurence Zipvogel uh, in Paris, she works with the, she's a leader, re leading researcher in the Institut Gustave Roussy in Paris, found that in 200 consecutive uh, of, uh, cancer, people with cancer who were treated with immunotherapy, if she separated the ones who responded and did really well from the ones who didn't respond, right? Most of them don't respond that well. The only difference that could be found was a s single missing bacteria in the gut of people who did not respond. That is a bombshell, like jaw-dropping to think that a single bacteria or the absence thereof could lead your body not to respond to a life-saving immunotherapy. And that bacteria has been identified called Acromantia mucinophila. It's a normal healthy gut bacteria that loves to grow in the mucus of our gut. And guess what? You can't, it, that bacteria is so sensitive, you take a common antibiotic used to treat bronchitis, for example, you will wipe out that bacteria with just a couple of pills. And, <clears throat> and, you, and you can't grow back. You can't eat it back with, with a probiotic as yet. The only way you can actually help to grow back that acromantia, that life-saving bacteria that Dr. Zitvogel and now others have found uh, and, and verified the finding is with food. It turns out that pomegranate juice real pomegranate juice contains um, a natural chemical, a bioactive called um, elagitanins that cause our body, when we, when we put that into our body, the chemicals in pomegranate juice um, naturally cause our gut, our intestines to secrete the mucus, so all natural, to secrete the mucus that the acromantia, that life-saving bacteria, loves to thrive in. So drinking pomegranate juice can actually grow back the bacteria to allow you to actually respond to the immunotherapy. So here's an example of food, not food as medicine, but food and medicine can make all the difference in the world. And we're just starting to peel back the first couple of layers of the onion to show just how powerful foods can be in influencing our health defenses, including in situations like immunotherapy. Are there maybe two to three particular items maybe from your, your list you've got 200 or so items on there these incredible things that would be particularly effective in terms of either preventing or reversing cancer yeah sure i mean look i wrote about 200 foods because i really wanted to be able to demonstrate that when you look at the science alone um, the evidence, the data shows that there, it's not just a few foods and not just green colored foods that actually can bring benefits, but a whole range of foods that we actually already love. And I also wanted to be able to 
um, clear up. I, I tell people that, you know, um, I have a vendetta against confusion and I really dislike it when the science tells us one thing, but the common urban legends say something else and it makes everybody confused like it does for food and health. And so um, I wanted to put 200 some foods in my book to really just present all the information out there and find um, uh, uh, foods that you love. Uh, start with those because if you already love them, you're already ahead of the game. So let's let's pick <clears throat> three foods that actually I write about in my book, Eat to Beat Disease, that actually can uh, fight cancer and the evidence shows that it's effective. So um, I'm going to start with soy, soybeans, uh, uh, soy foods, tofu, because it's controversial. And we know that um, uh, soy has recently gotten kind of a scary reputation because um, some people believe that um, uh, the, that the soy, the estrogen, the plant estrogens found in soybeans could actually uh, uh, cause breast cancer. And we know that some human breast cancers are um, sensitive to estrogen, human estrogen. But now what the science shows us is that plant estrogens look nothing like human estrogens. Even though they carry the same name, they're very different. And in fact, plant estrogens block human estrogens and actually can lower the risk for breast cancer. Now, how do we know this is true um, in humans? It turns out that there was a study of 5,000 um, women who already have breast cancer. These are the highest risk women because they already have the disease. <clears throat> and they studied the amount of soy they ate, soy foods they ate, and found that the women who ate more soy had a less chance of dying from their breast cancer. And if they're cancer was well treated with surgery, they had a lower uh, chance, about a 30% risk, um, the lower risk of actually having their cancer come back. 30% lower mortality, 30% lower chance of having their cancer come back. And this is with women who ate more soy. So the question is, how much soy do you have? did they have to eat? About 10 grams of soy protein a day. And how much is that? That's about the amount of soy protein that's in a, a, a typical glass of soy milk. So lots of different kinds of soy foods, overturning the myth of soy being dangerous for breast cancer, quite the opposite. And this is um, supported by scientific evidence in the lab, in, uh, in cells, in animals, in humans, and now in populations. So soy is the first um, food I want to uh, talk about. The can, second is, sorry, sorry, can I just yeah. jump in quickly? Wasn't yeah. there a study on this done in, was it Shanghai? Yes, it's a Shanghai women's um, uh, 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 breast cancer study. That this is this is that five thousand. That's it. Um, yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, amazing. Now, we'll link that below. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and I'll also tell you that I mean, anybody who's interested, you could dive into the book. I have in the back part of my book um, some uh, uh, additional notes for people that are really interested in digging into the study and looking at the references and looking at the study in more detail. But you know, and some people say, "Well, look, that's just one study, even though it's five thousand people. That's a lot of people." Um, what I, I will tell you that further, there's been a meta-analysis, and that's combining 14 different studies looking at soy and breast cancer. And in every single case, the result and the combined results have been, been very consistent, showing that the more soy you eat, the better survival is from breast cancer. And in no case, over 14 studies, do you see increase in death. Wow. And so, you know, this is this is powerful stuff if you just look at the facts. Um, another uh, powerful food is tea. Green tea um, uh, contains EGCG. It's a natural catechin, a polyphenol found in tea. Um, when you take tea and, and brew a cup of tea, um, and the, those, those natural chemicals dissolve from the tea leaf into the liquid that you drink. And green tea, and uh, and we used to think that it's you know just like you know a tea bag, but you can also have whole tea leaves. You could have matcha, which is green tea that's ground up, like in the you know in a Japanese restaurant they will often serve green tea that's really a brilliantly green, you know, um, kind of a a, a uh, opaque uh, greenness to the tea. That's the entire leaf ground up, and you drink that, and it and it and it what you're doing is you're putting to your body these natural chemicals found in the tea leaf that actually cut off the blood supply feeding cancer. It starves cancer by cutting off its blood supply naturally without harming your normal blood supply. And it turns out that drinking you know, um, uh, up to four cups or more of green tea a day can lower your risk of colon cancer. And that makes a lot of sense because the tea is rushing right through your system and being absorbed, but also other cancers as well. Lung cancer uh, can also be benefited. So, and then some people say, well, I don't know if I really like green tea turns out that black tea can also have some benefits, but black tea does something different. Black tea actually has natural chemicals 
<clears throat> that um, prompt our body to release our own stem cells that can help regenerate our heart and help our organs work better and, and help our brains work better. So it's really, really quite amazing uh, what tea can do. The last one I'll tell you is tomatoes. Um, I love tomatoes. If you pick a tomato off a of vine and cut it up in your salad, it's amazingly juicy and tasty. Um, there's an urban legend now that uh, that tomatoes are dangerous to eat because they contain <clears throat> because they're related to the nightshade, which is a deadly plant, and that there are toxins called lectins found in the skin of tomatoes. And you know, first of all, um, lectins are hundreds of different kinds of molecules, and some of them are toxic. The ones in tomatoes are not. Um, secondly, the proof is in the pudding um, because um, tomatoes don't just contain uh, lectins that are harmless. They also contain other really powerfully beneficial materials like lycopene, which is a natural chemical that can cut off the blood supply that could feed prostate cancer. And a study of 36,000 men called the um, Harvard Men's Follow-Up Study, Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, found that those men who ate two to three servings of cooked tomatoes every week, two to three servings only, and each serving is a half a cup, so that's just a little bit of red sauce um, in, in a pasta or some other, or maybe even a little bit of a, <clears throat> you know, um, a tomato juice twice a week, two to three times a week, had an up to 30% reduction in the risk of developing prostate cancer. And what, they, what the tomato, the lycopene does, is it cuts off the blood supply feeding prostate cancer so it can't, prostate cancer can't grow. Why do you have to cook the tomato? Well, it turns out that lycopene on the vine tends not to be able to be easily absorbed by our gut. So mother nature on the vine can created lycopene in a form that the body, you know, kind of absorbs a little bit, but most of it kind of runs right through us. But if you heat the tomato um, and you simmer it, uh, ideally in, at the temperature that olive oil can bring it to, you would slowly, gently um, change the chemistry, the natural chemistry, into a form the body avidly loves to absorb. And now the lycopene in cooked tomato sauce, ideally cooked with olive oil, uh, because lycopene is dissolves in oil. So when you have tomato sauce, tomatoes cooked in olive oil, and you eat that, um, the oil brings it right into your bloodstream um, and absorbs it really well. <clears throat> you can double or even triple the amount of lycopene your body absorbs when it's cooked. Um, think about what that means. That is the Mediterranean diet, right? So cooked tomatoes. And, and so, again, um, so I would say soy, soy foods, tea, not just green tea, tomatoes, um, the delicious raw, even better for you and activate your uh, uh, cancer defense systems when cooked um, are three um, top foods that I would recommend to everyone. That is amazing. Our audience will love that so much. And on a personal note uh, for you, you know, Will, you seem to have been very relentless in the, you know, in the last few years with all this amazing work in which you're doing. Um, I mean, I, I think I heard you say in that, that by this point, the FDA, they've, they've, uh, They've approved, I think it was like 32 of your findings. Um, I bet they must be sick of seeing your name. You've just created this this amazing book. I suppose, what's next for you personally and where can our audience connect with you? Right. Well, you know, first of all, I'm just getting started in what I've done. And it. although it is true that, you know, I've used science to help to create more than 30 um, FDA approved drugs and devices to help treat diseases like cancer and prevent blindness and to help heal um, problems in diabetes. The reality is, is all the science now is is pointing me in the direction of actually applying this to help us um, really um, uh, biohack into how foods can be used to improve our health, treat disease, and restore us back to full function even if we are sick. And so 200 Foods is where we started with. I wrote about it in my book, Eat to Be Diseased. You can buy my book anywhere that books are sold, online or in bookstores. My favorite is actually to go to you know, the traditional bookstore because uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little old-fashioned that way. It's like record stores. <laughs> uh, you know, I like going to Amazon. And I like iTunes. But man, there's nothing that quite like going into a bookstore or going to a record store and flipping through things. That's just me. But I think a lot of people probably feel the same way. You get to explore um, and, and find things. And um, uh, so anywhere books are sold, you can buy my book. You can also come to my website um, at Dr. Dr. William Lee, L-I is my last name, dot com. It's Dr. William 
leeli.com. And for anybody who comes to my website, I have something um, that I really wanted to um, provide to um, people who are interested in, in my work. And that, that is a free downloadable shopping list. So I took the 200 foods, the best ones, and I um, organized them into a shopping list in the order in which you would find them in a grocery store. So if you've got this list, download for free. Just sign up and download the thing for free. You can just take this list with you. You can stick it onto a mobile phone. You can put it in your pocket and just go into a grocery store and just pick off stuff that's good for you. It makes it like an like an, like easy peasy, no-brainer. You know, you don't have to work too hard at picking out the healthy foods uh, for you. So my website, drwilliamlee.com, please sign up, get a free shopping list, um, uh, buy my book, uh, and also, you can find me on social media. My face, my my Facebook as as Dr. Dr. William Lee, um, uh, and also um, on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And so, you know, I'm really looking forward to connecting with your audience. Uh, there's a lot more to come uh, in the coming year. It's only going to get more exciting. And by the way, one thing to let your audiences know is that you know, look, um, I'm not a vegan. I'm not a gluten free person. I am a foodie. I enjoy eating, and I believe. That our food teaches us something about our families, our history, and our cultures. And that's different for everybody. So um, my approach to eating healthy is really leaning into the foods that we love, that our culture delivered to us, and not to fear food, but to really find the foods that we already love and start with those healthy choices that can allow us to build on things that are not just good for us, but also they taste good to us. My word, this has been this has been a, a sensational, sensational podcast. I just got one last question to wrap it up. This is sort of it could be maybe related to the work, but we always ask at the end if in a scenario in which hypothetically every person on this planet was tuned into the same frequency and Unfortunately, your five health defense systems, they may be letting you down by this point. You may not have long left and you could give one short but impactful to the one short but impactful message to the world based on your life. What would Dr. William Lee's message be? I would say eat delicious, fresh cooked foods that you love and start with plant based foods. And that is the easiest way to embark on a uh, message that anyone can build on. Dr. Lee, this has been an absolute pleasure connecting with you, your passion for your field, your, your quest for truth. And it's been a, a real, you know, amazing conversation. And from myself and, and the team here, we pay our gratitude to the work in which you're doing. And uh, I certainly hope that this isn't the last time that we connect. Well, well, thank you, Joseph. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to engaging with your audience and happy to come back at any time. We can pick a topic that you think, you know, would be resonant. And, um, you know, the amazing thing about health defense is it applies to almost anything. And when it comes to food, whether it's a holiday, it's a birthday, it's a, you know, it's a controversy, it's something in the news, you can count on me to come, come back and, uh, and give you my point of view.